Well, good morning, and thank you for coming. Uh, we're going to study Psalm 73 this morning. So take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 73. If you're using a Bible that's been provided by the church, it's on page 574. The heading of the psalm tells us that Asaph is the author. The heading is a psalm of Asaph. Now that's part of the original. The bold black print is what your editor stuck in there. That's not from God. But the psalm of Asaph is part of the original. In your Hebrew Bible, if you had one, it would actually be verse 1. Verse 1 would be a psalm of Asaph. And uh, what we know about Asaph a lot comes from 1 Chronicles 16. In 1 Chronicles 16, we learn that Asaph was the lead musician in Israel and during King David's reign. And we learn that he was a percussionist. Uh, particularly, he was a symbolist. So he's the guy that clangs the cymbal on the stage. Now, how would you like him for your lead musician? He also wrote the lyrics to several of the songs that the Israelites sang in their worship services, uh, like Psalm 73. This is one of their songs that Asaph wrote that they sang as they worshiped God. And so on Sunday morning, when the Israelites woke up and went out to their fields and were singing the songs in their minds, Asaph was the one that put the thoughts there. So he was a leader. He was well-known, highly respected, a man of influence among God's people. Psalm 73 is a psalm of one of his personal struggles. Now, I believe that God included it in their hymnal and in our canon because it's a universal struggle. It's one we share. God wants us to know that the struggle is common and that he has a solution. And he wants you to be aware of the struggle and his solution. So the psalm opens with a statement of theology. Verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now God was good to Israel from the very beginning, and you probably know the story. Uh, God picked Abraham out of all the people on the face of the earth, and he entered into covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And so... God selected Abraham and, and his concern and watchful care in Abraham's life went to Isaac. Then it went to Jacob and then to Joseph in Egypt and all the things that happened to Joseph in Egypt. 400 years later, he raised up Moses to free him from the land of Egypt, lead him out. He led him out to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with, with the whole nation. 
from Mount Sinai. They went to the border of the land of Canaan and ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And the whole time, God protected and provided for the Israelites, demonstrating his goodness. Under Joshua, they conquered the land. And more recently, God in his goodness removed the dysfunctional King Saul and replaced him with David, a man after God's own heart. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now the word truly in the beginning of that verse, or surely some of your Bibles might say, truly God is good to Israel, is a word of limitation. God is good to Israel, but he's only good to Israel. He's always good to Israel, and he's never not good to Israel. He's, he, he's not even uh, neutral. He's never less than good. He's good to Israel. He's good to his people. He's only good to his people. He's always good to his people, and he's never less than that. Do you want to know why? Because God is good. And if he's good, he does good. And there's no bad in God. There's no evil in God. And so he can't do bad. He can't do evil. He's good. He's wholly good. So everything he does is good. Well, let's remember something about God. Let's remember that he's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he was good to Asaph and the Israelites in 1023 BC, he's good to his people in the year of our Lord 2023. And I think that's exactly what James tells us. If you were to read James chapter 1, you'd come to the verse that says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. There was no variation with Asaph, and there's no shifting shadow with us. Because God is good, and he's only good, and he's always good to his people. Doesn't always feel that way, though, does it? Things happen. And sometimes things, things happen that cause us to question our belief system. Uh, uh, the, the road gets rocky. The level path becomes a mountain. The wind shifts from our back to our face. And, and all of a sudden, we're faced with things that cause us to say, well, here's what I believe, but it's just not true in my experience. God might be good generally, but he's not good to me. He might be good to some. He might be good to you. But with me, not so much. That's what happened to Asaph. 
Look in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph hit a spot in his life when his theology and his experience didn't line up. He, he got an A in his class on, on, on systematic theology. He was struggling in the class on, on victorious Jewish living. caused that struggle? What caused that doubt and unrest in his life? Well, let's read on. We're going to read verses 3 through 12. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. And they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. And loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. What was the cause of his unrest? He dropped his eyes and he looked at the world around him. And he saw all that they had saw all the things he didn't have. And the world looked then a lot like it looks today. The wicked prosper. Now when he uses the term wicked here, he's not talking about mafia, drug lords, gang bangers. That's not what he's talking about with the wicked. The wicked in the wisdom literature of Israel are those who just choose to live independently from God. They give him no mind. They have no regard for his ways. They love this world. And they love the things of this world. It looked a lot then like it looks today. The wicked prosper. And when he, when he dropped his eyes and looked at the world around them and saw all the things that they had and all the things he didn't have, he looked and he saw, well, their houses look like mansions. Their chariots have mag wheels. Their clothes are not name brands from TJ Maxx. They're insulated from the struggles of common people. And very quickly in life, they learn that, that they're a cut above. They're part of the elite class, the untouchables. So they adorn themselves with pride, and they scoff at men and God. 
And Asaph looked around. And he said, they have everything. And all I have is God. What was his conclusion? Well, look at what we read in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. First of all, he, he looked at the world around him and he, he realized they had everything. They were prospering. They were getting rich. And then they were getting richer on top of it. And, 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 and if you talk about blessing, look at all the blessings they have. And then he looked at his own life. And, and he, he said, not only do I not have all that stuff, but, geez, this pursuit of godliness thing is, is a work in self-sacrifice self and self-denial. This, this, this pursuit of spiritual maturity is a struggle, a work in progress, a constant work in progress. Every morning, I wake up to a spiritual battle. And, and when the path diverged in the wood, I took the wrong one. My life has amounted to nothing. I've lived in vain. That was his conclusion. So when he found himself on this slippery slope, what did he do? Well, verses 15 through 17 tell us. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Now, let me just make an observation about the wicked and the righteous, the wise and the fool. Uh, the wicked or the fool lives independently from God. They, have, they give him no mind and they have no regard for his ways. And they never ask the question, what does God say about this? They never ask the question. But when Asaph found himself on the slippery slope, and he, and he became envious of those people that had all that stuff. Being righteous and wise, he said to himself, maybe I should find out what God says about this. And so we, when he found himself on this slippery slope, he didn't just say, well, I see clearly. I, 
my perspective is crystal clear on this. I'm just going to run with this. He said, let me get God's perspective. And let me hear how God defends himself on the charge. You're not being good to me. So he took his eyes and he lifted them 90 degrees. It's just a short move of your eyes. It just goes like this. But it's a huge move of perspective. It's just a movement from here to here. But it changes everything. And Asaph realized he wasn't a rock. And he wasn't an island. And he didn't live in isolation. And his decisions were not independent decisions. As if the only thing that mattered in life was him. He recognized he lived in community. He had family. He had friends. He had the respect and influence among God's people. And so before he just acted on his discontent and said, my life is stupid, I'm going the other way, he stopped and realized, I have responsibility. You know, when he dropped his eyes to the world and he looked around, became envious of all the things that they had and he became discontented with what he had and he, and he realized that the temporal perspective has a message and, and if the temporal world, the temporal life is all there is, then the wicked get it right if this life is all there is then live to gratify your desires. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. If this life is all there is, then by all means the one with the most toys wins. Life does consist of your possessions. But then he moved his eyes 90 degrees. He got an eternal perspective. It was a slight shift of his eyes, but a shift from the temporal to the eternal. And he discerned their end. Here's what he realized. Beginning in verse 18, we're going to read through verse 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Did you notice the play on words? 
when he dropped his eyes and became envious of the wicked, he found himself on a slippery slope. But now, now he lifts his eyes up and he gets an eternal perspective and he perceives their end and he recognizes, no, they're the ones on slippery ground. They're the ones standing on quicksand. quicksand. They're, they're, uh, when they stumble, they actually fall and there's no one there to catch them, no one there to lift them up. They've decided to go it alone. And when they fall, they fall hard. And they fall alone. That doesn't bring us joy, does it? In fact, it breaks our hearts. This is not a psalm triumphing the destruction of the wicked. This is a psalm giving us the dark background against which the goodness of God can be seen. And the dark background of their destruction is the contrast to God's goodness to you. So look what happens next. Verse 20, 21 rather. We're going to read from 21 through the end, and then I'm going to come back and uh, develop a couple points out of this. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your work. Isn't this amazing? This contrast? Notice what he says in verse 21 again. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He dropped his eyes and looked at the world and he said, all they, look at all the things they have. All I have is God. When he became envious of them, he realized he was acting out of complete ignorance. He was acting bestial, animalistic, living only on instinct, and hunger. Nevertheless, even when I was that far gone, nevertheless, I was always with you. 
you had hold of my right hand. Even then, even when we act stupid, God has a hold of our hand and he never lets go. He almost slipped, he almost stumbled, and God said, no, 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 I gotcha. And God's going to walk you home all the way to glory. And we have someone to catch us and pick us up when we stumble. Do you want to know why? Because God is good, he's only good, and he's always good to his people. And you cannot get away from him. He has claimed you as, your own, as his own. And he holds on. And even when we try to pull our hand away, he goes, no. There's danger out there. Look in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When he dropped his eyes and he looked at the world, you know what he found? Discontentment. He looked at the world and said, they have everything and all I have is God. Then he turned his eyes 90 degrees. And he says, they have everything. But I have God and his spiritual riches. Slight shift of the eyes. Huge shift of perspective. You know it has to be that way? It, it can't be any other way. You want to know why? Because God is good. And he can never let our hearts be satisfied with counterfeits. You know the saying. You have a God-shaped hole in your heart. And it can't be filled by anything but God. It's a, it's a sign of his goodness. It's an expression of his goodness that, 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 that we hunger today, we eat, tomorrow we have to eat again. We cannot be satisfied by, by gratifying our appetites. It's an expression of his goodness that when you love money, you never have enough money. Love money, and you'll never get enough. Money can't satisfy. It's a counterfeit. And God is good, and only good, and always good. And he's God, and there is no other. And so when Asaph turned his eyes 
up 90 degrees? He said, they can have all their things. It's really good to have God. And finally, I'd like you to look in verse 28, specifically the last line. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And here's the line I want you to notice, that I may tell of all your works. See, this is a psalm of an instance of the goodness of God. Let me tell you what happened this time. But if God is good, and only good, and always good, it's not going to be the only time. There's going to be good from God tomorrow. And there's going to be good from God on Tuesday. And there's going to be good from God in 2024. And every day you live, God's got your right hand, will not let you go, and will demonstrate his goodness to you because that's who he is. And so Asaph goes, oh, this was one time, but I know there's more coming, and I'm going to tell of them all. And God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you want to be discontented, love this world and live for the things of this world. Listen to the marketers. Believe the advertisements. You need another one. You need a new one. You need a second one. You need a blue one. And, and then, surely, that's the one. But if you want contentment, get a different perspective. Get an eternal perspective. And look back in your history. Look back. And remember, God gave his one and only son to give you eternal life. He gave his one and only son so that you would have life and the abundant life. And look at your present. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your eternal inheritance. God has a hold of your right hand. And he will never let go because the Holy Spirit indwells you. And then look at your future. And remember this, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all,
how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? If God made the ultimate sacrifice to give us life and the abundant life by giving us his son, he'll never withhold good things from us. He already gave us the best. Father, we bow before you today. Keep us mindful of your goodness to us. As we face the temptation of things, hang on, please. Give us the wisdom to lift our eyes. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Amen.